Well, the start of 2021 was bleak, with the world still in the grip of a pandemic that had already decimated major economies. The outlook now is more positive. There is a sense of hope thanks to progress on the vaccination drive and the easing of coronavirus restrictions. The global recovery is backed up by huge levels of monetary and fiscal support, as well as improving growth and earnings, which have translated into significant rallies in most equity markets. However, abounding economies also bring uncertainty. Inflation is ramping up and monetary support will soon start to unwind, putting countries' employment levels at risk. With geopolitics also back on the agenda as the Biden administration engages with the world once again, any decision there has the power to move markets. At the same time, the vaccination program has been uneven, with emerging markets getting the short end of the vaccine stick. And let's not forget, the COVID crisis is far from over. So as we enter the second half of the year, what is the outlook from here? Welcome to Pocketful of Dirhams. I'm Alice Hayne and joining me today is Sami Shah, Chief Economist at Swiss private bank Lombard Odia, who will tell us what to expect next. If you want to get the latest episodes of Pocketful of Dirhams, make sure to subscribe on your favourite podcasting app. Welcome back to the show, Sammy. Hello, Alice. Thanks for having me. Now, in January, I think we were all losing hope a little. I don't know about you, Sammy, but I was enduring my third lockdown, this time in England, and there was a sense it would never end. So for investors, that might have seemed a a sort of quite a negative thing. But despite the dip at the start of the pandemic, the markets have remained resilient. Why is that? So it's clear that in January, we were still in the middle of the tunnel, right? And it doesn't seem that... uh, uh, the light was uh, uh, imminent. However, um, if you remember, we started to have very good news on the uh, efficacy of the vaccines in um, October, November, and December of the year before. So as you know, markets tend to be forward-looking. And basically, the market narrative was that by, uh, let's say, the summer of 2021, uh, mass vaccination uh, would have been achieved in some parts of the Western world, and therefore we would be in an environment where reopenings uh, and decisive reopenings were were possible. So although we were still in the middle of the tunnel, it's clear that the light uh, was uh, was coming ahead, and therefore markets were looking through basically the difficult period because they knew that as the vaccination process was unfold, uh, we were going to be able to, to reopen the economy and, and basically economic activity was able to, uh, uh, to revive. And the second element I, I would mention on, on why markets were on the positive side in January, despite the, the, the lockdowns, is that in December, we had a pretty substantial rescue package coming out of the US, 900 billion. And the Biden administration was already hinting at another rescue package uh, in the magnitude of the trillions of dollars, we indeed got 1.9 trillion in March, but it was already discussed, I would say, as soon as January. So very clearly, uh, the fiscal support out of the US and the efficient vaccines were the two reasons why basically markets look through and uh, remained in a positive trend. So a lot has changed since then. You know, vaccination programs have ramped up across, particularly across the sort of developed markets. So what can we expect from the second half of the year now? Is it all onwards and upwards from here? I would say the um, the main uh, characteristic of the recovery, especially thinking about the second half of the year, is, is how this recovery is playing out in sequence, right? It's not everyone 
recovering, growing at the same time, at the same pace. Now, very clearly, the recovery started in China, in the goods sector, uh, and in the trade of goods and the production of goods. And then it rolled over in the US as they were at the forefront of the vaccination process. And basically what's happening now is that Europe is taking the relay, right? So we have this rolling recovery from China to the US, now to Europe, and perhaps with a bit of luck and probably with a six months delay, at some point we can imagine that uh, in the large hard hit emerging markets, uh, we'll see you know, activity rebound perhaps later this year or eventually at the beginning of 2022. But very clearly, this rolling nature of this recovery is what's playing out. And now is Europe's turn. So I think in the coming quarters, we're going to see a lot of pent-up demand uh, in Europe as basically the continent has achieved or is close to uh, having achieved mass vaccination and the reopening is allowing again for, for people to consume. The final thing I would say about this rolling recovery and what to expect in the second half is that you know we've just had the discussion on on basically the change in leadership from one region to another, but it's the same when it comes to sectors, right? It started with goods, it started with trade, it started with manufacturing, and now very clearly the service sector uh, is going to be at the forefront of this recovery, is going to be the key driver of the recovery. Spending um, is shifting from spending in goods to spending into services. So when I think about those um, uh, those two elements, Europe and services, it means that you know the recovery still has legs, uh, and the fact that it has a rolling nature means that we're going to enjoy uh, this this recovery uh, for quite some time, unless obviously something comes in the way. So that all sounds quite positive, but as you're saying, unless, and that's the key word. So what kind of risk factors should investors be thinking about now? You know, we still have the Delta variant to contend with, such as in the UK particularly. So what, what should we be aware of? Well, the, the first key risk is, as you mentioned, it remains the pandemic, right? Is that at some point, uh, because the vaccination process is too slow in some parts of the world, we see variants developing and obviously the worst case would be a variant that is vaccine resistant. I think the, the, the great chance we have currently is that uh, the vaccines are efficient against all known variants, even the Delta variant, right? So it's very clear that um, uh, vaccines are efficient. They prevent serious uh, cases from developing. Uh, they reduce uh, uh, the death toll, and, and that, is a, that is a net positive. It does mean that we need to push the vaccination through, uh, but obviously the key risk to the outlook remains that uh, you know, the vaccination can be too slow in some parts of the world, and that at some point we have a variant that is vaccine resistant. Thankfully, we are not there yet, uh, but we need to be conscious that uh, uh, unless we get vaccination through extremely quickly, there is always this risk that uh, um, a uh, a variant that is resistant develops, and therefore that brings us back to square one, basically. So hopefully it won't happen, but we, we, we do remain very vigilant. The other risk basically has to do with the policy response, um, which is that uh, uh, a too soon removal of policy support, whether it's on the monetary front or the fiscal front, would obviously come as a risk because the recovery is still young in some parts of the world. Perhaps it's, it's being more mature in the US, uh, and that can leave the Fed, the Federal Reserve, right, eventually review some of its emergency policy. But we need to keep in mind that typically in Europe, um, we are still technically uh, in a double dip recession, right? We, we haven't yet had a positive quarter 
uh, in 2021. So it's a little bit too soon to imagine that we can withdraw some of the policy support. The recovery still needs to be secured uh, by this policy support. So we would see as a risk uh, any premature withdrawal either on the monetary side or the fiscal side, especially in Europe and, and in, some, uh, in some emerging as well. So there is a policy risk here uh, thinking about, about the recovery. And perhaps the final risk that we might discuss uh, uh, a little bit further is, is obviously, well, perhaps with all this stimulus, uh, there might be the risk of overheating the economic machine. Uh, we've discussed a lot about inflation in the US and, and perhaps if it gets out of hand, it would force uh, uh, the um, um, uh, the central banks and the policymakers to withdraw um, uh, policy a little bit too harshly. So that would come as a risk. So we really see those three big risks, the pandemic, too soon withdrawal of policy support, or on the other hand, a potential uh, uh, overheat that gets out of hand. Now you mentioned inflation there. Some economists have been getting very uptight about that. They're, they, some of them think it's going to sort of soar out of control. Others see it more of a as a sort of temporary blip. Is that a concern for you? Do you think there's going to be wider implications for the markets? No. So we're 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 uh, very much into the transitory camp here for for a certain number of reasons. Now the first reason is you know if you're if you're worried about something, well you might as well look into it. And when you look into the inflation data that we've seen in the US, it's very clear that most of the sharp increase in inflation is due to very temporary factors and, 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 and mainly base effects. So base effects from oil uh, or base effects from the reopening. So the fact that inflation in the US is concentrated in a very limited number of subcomponents means that, again, uh, we don't have a a broad inflation issue, right? It's it's really the reopening and the base effect that explain sixty to seventy percent of um, uh, of the normalization of inflation. So so that's a big reason. Again, huh? the fact that there is no breadth into uh, into the uh, the inflation report, uh, in our view, shows how transitory this mechanism. And at some point, you know, we will digest the base effects from oil. We will digest. Uh, the base effects from the from the reopening. Now, another important reason why we're in the transitory camp is, is also all the, the bottlenecks story, as there are bottlenecks indeed, but there are bottlenecks because there is very uh, low uh, inventories. Right? During the crisis, uh, companies have drawn from their inventories because they couldn't produce because of the restrictions or they didn't want to produce because of the demand uncertainty. So they used inventories. It means that today, uh, you know, we have the capacity to respond to some of the demand, but we don't have the inventory. So we lack a tool uh, to respond, I would say, to, to the recovering demand. And that is something that is transitory in nature. We will rebuild inventories into quarters to come, but it takes a bit of time. Right? And the final uh, argument for us being uh, in the transitory camp is simply the labor market in the U.S. Um, uh, there is you know, some tightening uh, going on, but I mean, we're still in an environment where there is a lot of slack in our view in the U.S. labor market. There is still uh, around 9.5 million workers who haven't recovered a job. These workers, you know, perhaps they are not willing to uh, uh, seek for a job now because they still benefit from, you know, the, uh, the unemployment insurance. Uh, they still have restrictions or eventually their, their, their kids uh, can't go to school. But at some point, these 9.5 million people, they, they will start looking for a job again uh, as soon as now or, or at the latest in September. So there's going to be a lot of supply of workers in the U.S. 
uh, economy. And that obviously means that it's going to reduce some of the uh, uh, short-term tensions that, 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 that we've seen. Perhaps a final point on inflation. Uh, for those who have experienced inflation in their life, when, when, when you have inflation in an economic system, inflation is usually everywhere, it's in every sector. Uh, it's everywhere in the economy. And to be fair, it should be everywhere in the Western world as well. If, if we were about to witness a shift in the inflation regime, uh, we shouldn't only be seeing inflation in the US, right? It would be broad-based because supply chains are, are global. So we should be seeing a bit more inflation in, in Japan, in, in Europe, in Switzerland, or, or even in China. And when we look at inflation globally, there are absolutely no signs of a regime shift when it comes to uh, to inflation, right? Inflation remains very well within a uh, uh, medium-term range in, in, in China or even in Israel. If we take the example of economies that have reopened ahead of the others, we see very little signs of uh, uh, global inflation. We, we have some in the US for very specific reasons, but at some point, these reasons will be digested as well. So uh, uh, you know, we're about to see, I would say, inflation probably roll over in the months to come in the US, and we don't see that as a persistent worry. Okay, so you talked about the employment market there as well. You talked about the US. What about in the UK and Europe? I mean, in the UK, for example, government support is now is now being withdrawn gradually over the next few months. You know, is there a risk that we're going to see higher unemployment levels, and is that going to be a risk factor for the for the markets as well? Well, there is always the possibility to have a policy mistake if you withdraw. A stimulus uh, too soon or too sharply, eventually you run that risk. But the reality is that the UK economy is recovering extremely, extremely strongly. And, and Europe is about to, to recover extremely strongly as well. As you reopen, again, there's pent-up demand and uh, you see a revived economic activity. So it's normal as the recovery unfolds that slowly but surely, slowly but surely, and gradually, you remove some of the emergency schemes that were there uh, to compensate for some of the uh, uh, damage from the shock. And now as the recovery basically is becoming more mature, it, 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 it's, it's becoming more evident, uh, it is indeed time to remove some of the emergency uh, schemes. I think the recovery is strong enough uh, to prevent um, that uh, gradual uh, normalization in, in policy to, uh, to be disruptive economically and to lead to higher levels of unemployment. Quite the contrary, there is, you know, uh, demand for, for jobs. There is a, a reviving economic activity. So it's normal as the patient gets better that you slowly but surely reduce some of the medication. And if it's done in a, in a gradual way, uh, the economy should be strong enough to, uh, uh, to offset basically the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the slow removal of the policy support. Now, we also have the geopolitical factors to think about. President Biden has got his Build Back Better campaign on, on the move. How significant is that? And, and any possible big sort of trade moves on a global level, how, how significant would they be for the, for the markets? Well, the infrastructure projects by the Biden administration is, is very promising in our view, right? Uh, there is something unorthodox about what they're doing. Usually, uh, you have, you know, what governments do is that they go into counter-cyclical uh, fiscal policy during a shock. And once the recovery is well in place, well, basically, they slowly remove uh, the fiscal support. Now, what's happening in the US is different, is that as the recovery is unfolding, rather than reduce the, the fiscal support, they kind of double down. And the reason they are doing so is that they are not doing some emergency uh, demand support schemes. Rather, they are doing long-term supply uh, investment 
schemes, which is which is necessary in some of these segments of the U.S. economy that where we have seen underinvestment through the decades. So, um, you know, thinking about the U.S. economy, talking uh, thinking about the polarization in the country, about um, you know the lack of investment in education, in healthcare, and in physical infrastructure, it makes a lot of sense that they try to compensate for decades and decades of underinvestment. So, so we see that as a, a, a net positive, something that is necessary, something that makes a lot of sense. And we do hope that the Biden administration will be able to, to push through uh, these measures before the, the end of the year. And we're seeing something slightly similar in Europe as well with the uh, EU next-gen fund, which again is playing out and is being deployed as the recovery uh, is starting to be on, on stronger footing. So that comes as a security, right? It, it secures the recovery, which is which is something I would say quite, quite remarkable uh, and that we see again as a net positive because you're going to invest uh, in, uh, in the economy and trying to, again, strengthen um, uh, the, uh, uh, the productive tool. Now, when it comes to the other risk that you were mentioning, which is trade, um, I would say, you know, compared to where we were a year or two ago, uh, the multilateralism approach of, of the Biden administration obviously removes one risk, especially when we think about the traditional uh, trade partners of the U.S., Mexico, Canada, South, South Korea, Japan, and Europe. I mean, not so long ago, there was the risk that the U.S. would put uh, tariffs and sanction uh, the Europeans for doing their digital tax. Now, that risk is totally out of the table now, right? And you've seen that they've even settled the um, Airbus and, and Boeing situation. So on, on the trade front, I would say things are going better, uh, especially with the traditional allies of the US, but obviously remains the difficult relationship with China, uh, which is something that we'll have to carry out and uh, that will continue uh, to be a risk to the outlook uh, for the next decade, right? They are not going to settle that situation uh, in the short term. So that that is... That is something that is well known. Uh, th that is something that hasn't changed with the new U.S. administration. Clearly, the U.S.-China relationship will continue to be complicated. But at least when it comes to the traditional uh, partners of the U.S., things got a little bit better. So looking more closely at the, at the markets, which sectors do you think are going to see a rise in equity prices in the second half of this year? And at the same time, which sectors are going to struggle? I would say that globally, we expect lower returns in the quarters to come <laughs> versus obviously the past uh, 12 months. So, you know, we've had a very sharp recovery, a big rebound in, uh, in asset prices, uh, which are obviously when it comes to equity markets, all close to their all time highs. So we still expect, you know, markets to move uh, higher on the recovery. Now, maybe it will be more volatile and maybe the returns won't be as, uh, as appealing as what we've had. But you know, we still feel that there is room for, for uh, improvement here, mainly because, again, with the recovery, we're going to see profit growth uh, um, uh, ahead, and, and that should help you know, markets move higher. Now, the very important recommendation that we make is, at this stage of the cycle, we need to, we, we need to remain cyclical, right? So this is still a time for us to give the benefit of the doubt to the recovery. And you know, we want to have a cyclical tilt in our portfolio and in our uh, equity positioning, which means that you know we favor uh, um, uh, cyclicality, industrials, materials, small and mid caps, uh, value trade. You know we still believe that we've seen a lot of of, of that trade uh, unfold, but we still believe that there is 
uh, a bit more to do. So all that cyclical tilt, uh, we you know we play it regionally. Um, and we play it when it comes to sectors. We play it when it comes to size. And you know clearly now is not the time basically to uh, uh, to, to 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 get more defensive, especially in the um, in the equity allocation. So you know uh, we're sticking to the cyclical uh, cyclical trade here. What about currencies? What's the outlook for the dollar, the euro, and the pound? You know, what are we going to see here? So you know, we don't have huge expectations when it comes to uh, to these uh, crosses. We have a, a target for the euro dollar year end at one twenty three. So we're not extremely far from that. Around one twenty seems to be um, a long term fair value for for the euro dollar, and we're, we're very close to that. So you know, we do not feel that there is a lot of potential in that trade. Eventually, maybe a little bit. Uh, more to to do within the emerging market currency space. Um, we like the renminbi. Uh, you know, the Chinese are in a more mature phase of of, uh, uh, of their cycle. They've uh, then you know they are more advanced in the tightening uh, of uh, policy measures. So that that is favorable to the renminbi. Um, so that that is one thing that we that we would do. But for the rest, uh, we don't feel that uh, there is you know many very, very stretched bets within the major currencies. So within portfolio, it's mainly a, a dollar dollar yuan story rather than euro dollar, let's say. Um, the other big theme, I think, for the second half of this year in the run-up to COP26 is the green transition. I mean, that's all I ever hear spoken about at the moment. How important is investing in that in the run-up to, to the big environmental summit in November? It's extremely important because um, uh, all the main economic actors are jumping on that trend, right? You have no choice, basically, if you are um, an entrepreneur or if you are in the industry. And if you think about the policymakers, it's very clear that they've embarked in that trend as well, right? If you if you consider the policy response we had after the great financial crisis, it was a very, I would say, traditional counter-cyclical response, and there was no, no green element to it. Now, look at the response we had when it comes to the, to, to the COVID crisis. Uh, a third to half of the response has to do with you know, improving the energy transition, green elements, digitalization. So something that is very promising. I would say it's clearly not enough. It's just the beginning of the story. Um, uh, but I would say you know, even when it comes to the policymakers, it's very clear that uh, these programs um, uh, have a have a green identity, and, and it does mean that you know, as investors, this this is a very important uh, a thematic um, that is that is clearly represented in our portfolios. So, to summarize, what are the three big things investors should look out for in the second half of this year? So, the first thing is to continue to monitor the recovery. And its rolling nature. It's going to be the turn of Europe. And what we want to make sure is that at some point, if the vaccination process goes through, um, uh, you know, the, ne- the next in line will be emerging markets, right? So we're going to monitor very closely the recovery and the vaccination process, especially in the emerging world, to make sure that you know, we avoid the risk of having a vaccine-resistant variant, uh, but also um, the vaccination in the large emerging markets would allow the recovery to unfold there as well. So something that we're watching very closely. Another element that we're watching as well is basically 
the change of language from the U.S. Federal Reserve, right? As the recovery is maturing in the U.S., it's becoming clear that the Fed uh, will probably very slowly and gradually uh, remove some of the policy support. So we do expect uh, the Fed to signal asset purchase tapering in the second half of this year uh, and to actually execute uh, the tapering in 2022 and then to raise rates in the first half of 2023. So we think that we think that that timeline is still very, very valid. Uh, but again, you know, shifting from uh, the, the shift in stance in, 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 in policy is something that has to be watched very closely. The market's prepared for that. But, you know, it, 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 there's always an element of discomfort when the Fed has to uh, shift the signal and, and um, um, engineer a policy that is a little bit less expansionary. So we will watch that uh, very carefully. And finally, um, you know, uh, an element that we'll be monitoring as well uh, is indeed uh, the commitment to, to the green thematic, very important in our view. And, you know, we want to reward and we want to be exposed to the economic agents that, uh, you know, are, are at the forefront of the green revolution. Thank you this week to Sami Shah. If you would like advice on your personal finance issues, you can write to me on pf at the national.ae and remember that pf stands for personal finance please do subscribe to the podcast and your podcasting app to get weekly updates and leave us a review so we know what you think this episode was produced by arthur edison i've been your host alice hayne <laughs>